Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 149 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we took a look at technology accessories and how accessories can make our gear more usable and more personalized. In this episode, we turn to the headlines and explore recent stories about Hillary Clinton's use of a personal email server. Many of the stories talk about something ominously referred to as shadow IT. Now, we've touched on shadow IT over the years on this podcast, but we thought it might be a good time to to really focus on shadow IT in, in some depth. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report, we'll be talking about the, the phenomenon of, as you said, shadow IT, or like as I like to think about it, what happens when your employees take technology into their own hands. Uh, in our second segment, we uh, look at some small additions to PowerPoint slides that can help when you prepare your next presentation. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first, let's get started on our main topic, and that's shadow IT. Uh, the idea of shadow IT really isn't a new one. I mean, in fact, I look back in our show archives, and we've periodically discussed the issue as early as 2010. I, I saw a, a reference to something. Uh, but shadow IT really came roaring back and gained some national prominence over the past couple of weeks when we learned that Hillary Clinton's been storing official State Department email on a personal server located on her property. Uh, so we thought we'd take a deeper dive uh, into the world of shadow IT in this episode. So, Dennis, why don't you um, why don't you start us off? What do people mean when they use that term? What do we intend to talk about with that term? Well, I think the easiest way to, or the the best definition and the easiest way to think about it is this: it's just a description for the way that people use unapproved IT systems, software, hardware. Uh, cloud solutions, and they use it inside their organization for work purposes without explicit uh, organizational approval. Uh, and often it's it's in you know, contravention of existing policies. And a lot of times it's done with good intention, but uh, sometimes has unexpected results. So I think it's just as simple as that. It's, it's just un- unauthorized IT use by employees uh, trying to, in some cases, trying to get work done that they need to get done, trying to do work better, or trying, in some other cases, trying to avoid detection over what it is that they're, they're doing. Now, Tommy, you want to maybe dive into the, to the Clinton email example, which is in, in some ways sort of a, an extreme example of, of shadow IT, but it also illustrates some of the basic principles of why um, employees might want to go around existing systems to get things done. Well, I mean, I think what we've what we've learned uh, is that Hillary Clinton, uh, the reason that she gave uh, in her, she finally talked about it. I think I think she waited a little bit too long to talk about it. But it turns out that Hillary Clinton has been 
basically keeping all of her official State Department emails on a separate non-federal government server uh, for during the time that she was Secretary of State, that she had a, her own server that was that was somewhere located on her property. They make it sound like it's a, in a shed in the backyard, but it's somewhere on her property. Uh, she the, the reason that she gave that she was doing it was that she didn't want to carry around two phones. Uh, and, and frankly, you and I see that all the time. You've, you've done that where you've had to have a, a, a work-issued phone and, and a personal phone. And I, I'm frequently working at clients where I see them bring two phones into the room. I think it's horribly inconvenient and it's, uh, it's, it, it, to me it would at least be, uh, I wouldn't call it a good reason, but I would say I understand the impulse behind wanting to get rid of one phone. Now what's interesting though is that email was actually not part of the federal record keeping rules in 2009 when she was Secretary of State, which sort of boggles the mind that, uh, that email was not required to be kept. And, and, and for me, and I don't want to get into a whole records management discussion because I could talk about this forever on this issue, but it's amazing to me that they didn't recognize that there are business communications in email, never mind the fact that she's talking about significant uh, matters of state security, whether you believe or not that she still has those emails. Um, I think there's no question that at some point in time she was communicating important information uh, that probably should have been captured and stored on a federal government server. Uh, You know, even if there were no requirements, even if she didn't break any laws. I really think I, I, it still boggles my mind that a government official would think it was appropriate to keep email on their own server. And and we're going to talk a little bit more. I want to talk a little bit more about email as we get into it. But it just sort of blows me away that any employee would think, you know, the rules don't apply to me um, for email. I'm going to do it on my own. And I don't know if that's just a personality thing or I don't know if this is really a lesson in shadow IT. That's why I sort of refer to it as kind of an extreme example where you go to the kind of end of the spectrum almost in, in terms of, of the tech to say, oh, I'm going to set up my own personal email server at home. I mean, it's, so a lot of people say, and they have a lot of reasons of, you know, sometimes it's a workaround, sometimes you need to get, you know, people need to get something done, and, and so they they run it through personal email. But typically people have a personal Gmail or uh, Yahoo or, or some other email account. So that's the more common example of of shadow IT in email, not somebody doing their own server. But it is kind of interesting because I think a lot of the shadow IT gets associated with with top executives who need to get something done or they want to use an iPad or something that's not quite been approved and they kind of get a special exception. and, And that sometimes opens the door to to you know, sort of quasi-approved shadow IT, but but sometimes sometimes unapproved, and and then I also think it's an example where convenience starts to outweigh uh, security because when you when you think of that personal email server. My first thought was like, how secure can that can that really be? You on the one hand, you say, well, it is a little inconvenient to carry two phones, but it seems like you're opening up some potential security issues here. So, but I so I think it illustrates a number of number of things that happen in in the world of, of shadow IT. Uh, Tom, I also wonder. There's there's two notions that sometimes get uh, blurred a little bit here, and and that's shadow IT and and BYOD, which is 
you know, bring your own device. And, and so in the bring your own device world, I think the big difference is that the IT department is letting you use your own device or your own technology with their approval, where shadow IT, um, you, you don't have that uh, official approval. So I, what are some other uh, sort of typical, typical things you associate with shadow IT? Well, I want to come back and, and say that I think that the whole BYOD phenomenon um, is at least in part a reason why we see shadow IT. You know, a couple of years ago, before BYOD, people didn't have it in their minds that uh, they could bring in their own technology to do things. And, and, and now, as it's become more popular and even accepted, and IT departments are starting to say, rather than fight back against it, we're going to work with employees to let them use their own technology, um, uh, it creates an expectation. So if I'm able to work and bring in my own technology in one company, and then I move to another job and suddenly that IT department has very different rules and is a lot stricter and won't let me use things, will my mindset be more likely to engage in a little bit of shadow IT and, uh, and, and bring my iPad in and work on it or, or do something different? I think it might. I think that BYOD actually probably leads to more shadow IT than we'd like to, uh, like to admit. That tends to be in the nature of hardware. Um, I, I think that uh, where we see it more often is in software uh, with, with people bringing in tools that they think will help them do a good job. I think, and I think that a huge area for software, I mean, for a while, it was instant messaging programs. Before companies started doing enterprise instant messaging, everybody would sign up for AOL Instant Messenger or Yahoo Instant Messenger, and they would be able to talk, and, and it was to achieve a certain purpose. I can communicate with my coworkers and with my friends on the side, um, but as a result, I'm capturing all sorts of interesting, maybe potentially uh, risky work conversations that are part of that. We've seen in the past couple of years, and e but even back as far as 2010, when you and I first talked about this, we're seeing... Uh, cloud services as being a, a ripe target for s shadow IT. Back then it was Google Docs. Now I would argue that it's Dropbox uh, or some cloud file sharing service uh, that people are tending to use. I know a lot of companies, uh, a lot of people in companies that I talk to started to use things like Basecamp because they, they think it's a better project management tool for what they need. Um, so we're seeing a lot of, of cloud services being used. And I will be honest, there are a couple of companies I talk to where they've actually talked about it with IT and IT is a prove that sort of thing. But I would say that that is the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. And I mean, there's a whole history of, of the software programs. I mean, I think of, of Skype being one of, one of the big ones early on as people figure, you know, use Skype for instant messaging and communicate, you know, video, video chat, that sort of thing. Um, it's free. So freeware, open source software where people don't have budget for certain programs. Uh, they can find a freeware program or uh, open source that will get what they need to get done. Uh, a lot goes on in that area. You know, sometimes people uh, like certain, like a newer version, perhaps in some cases an older version of software, a different version than what's used at the company that they're at. So maybe they're used to using something that the company that they came from. And and so that stuff will, will come on on the software side. And then I think, as you said, Tom, the cloud stuff is huge. I mean, I, I think the use of Dropbox by employees is uh, a little bit of research I did suggests it could be like 20% 
kind of levels of use of Dropbox uh, by employees, you know, uh, storing s- storing f- uh, company files in Dropbox. So, and the reason they do it is because the tools they have at the company aren't adequate or they don't perceive they're adequate or they don't know about certain features or they don't have training on them. So there's a lot of reasons. So people are are typically trying to get things done or they're trying to do something new or different or better. I mean, another in addition to Dropbox, the one that I hear a lot about, the you know, people start using or want to use is Prezi because they don't like uh, they don't want to do PowerPoint, and so they they go to this to to this Prezi, which is a cloud based presentation tool, and and again, it's typically against all the policies, and the IT people don't know about it, and the IT people just think, well, it doesn't do anything different than PowerPoint does, and and so it. It causes a kind of causes a, a lot of issues, but it extends from software. I mean, we talked about it can be hardware, apps, and smartphones are huge. I, first, one of the early stories about Shadow IT Time was about people finding that there was you know an unprotected uh, Wi-Fi access in in their firm, and they tried to track it down, and they found that it was a, a lawyer who wanted to. You know, work away f- from his or her desk and just brought in a, 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 a Wi-Fi router, and, and it was unsecured, and so it was it was you know visible, and and it gave exposure to the firm's network just because somebody wanted to wanted to work uh, away f- from his or her desk. Well, you know, I, I want to add one other thing, and, and this is something I see a lot in companies these days, and I think I've even talked about it on the podcast before. I think that some people might say that this isn't shadow IT, but I'm going to expand the definition of shadow IT slightly to to say that it is pushing back or finding ways to continue to do things the way you've always been doing them when IT tells you you can't do them that way. And, and, and my biggest example that I see these days is a f- concept that I call, that we call underground archiving, especially of email. And I see it a lot in companies where uh, the company has decided that uh, that email should not be retained for long periods of time, and we're going to delete it after a certain period of time. People feel very protective of their email. For most people, email is their file cabinet. It's where all of the all of the important information is stored. You need to be able to go back there as your reference tool over and over again. And and so when we have companies that are that have decided we're going to start deleting email on a regular basis, uh, we see a lot of times uh, employees finding other places to store that email, whether they're saving the email off to a, their own computer hard drive or to a shared drive somewhere or putting it on USB drives. Uh, uh, we've seen people who've emailed their own email back to their home address, so they're keeping a copy of all their email back there. It's just amazing the places that people can 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 send those that they're doing that because they think that something's going to be taken away from them. And I think that's one of, you know, we want to talk about what the reason why shadow IT appears. I think that that the main reason, like you said before, is that people want to find better ways to work. The tools that they're using are not meeting the need that they want. They want to collaborate, share documents. They want to be more efficient or productive. And they're, they are being limited or stifled, at least in their perception. I think a 
second big reason is that people use shadow IT to protect something that they think they're going to lose. If they think that it's going to stop them from being productive, this is how I'm going to protect myself and make sure that I can still be a, a productive member of this firm or of this company and security and all the rest be damned. Yeah, it is. And it is a tough thing because I think, you know, in so many cases, they're, they're really good intentions behind behind this. And people are just looking for a workaround. You know, you're trying to get, uh, say, a document signed and sent by a deadline or a court filing. And, you know, you're not in the office and you can figure out ways to do it, maybe by emailing yourself and printing it out at home and signing it, scanning it, emailing, you know, you, and so you come up with all these these workarounds and you're basically blowing by all the policies, but your intention is to actually get the work done. And then I think you do run into the thing where the people that you're working with uh, could be clients, could be other other people, but especially under a deadline where you don't have the tools you need to to do that work. I don't know how many times people run into a thing where there would be a, a Word document where we would track changes and you're not able to read it in, in you know, in, in the work, uh, say, over your, your work phone. and you, But, you know, if you send it to yourself on your home computer, you would be able to, to see that red line. And, and so I think those are kind of the typical things of that you have the work wanting to be done, the collaboration where somebody says, oh, uh, just use my WebEx or use my instant message system or, or something like that, and, and you do that. And then, then I think you're also right, Tom, and there is that sense of archiving where people are saying, um, you know, stuff is being automatically deleted. I think I need to keep it. Uh, and or, I, you know, I have a very small uh inbox limit in terms of storage. So maybe I'll, I'll offload some of these documents uh, somewhere else or I'm traveling and I can't do certain things. So I think there's, you know, and most of the time there's good intentions. and But there are plenty of examples where there are bad intentions behind shadow IT. Yep. No, I, I agree. So what are the... I guess we, we kind of know what the causes are. We got some examples of it. What are the issues with it? Why is it a bad thing? What's the problem with it? And I think you've mentioned before that security is probably the major issue, that, uh, that IT is not controlling it, that uh, you know when you put an email server in your backyard, uh, you have no idea what the level of encryption is or whether it's a, as secure as perhaps a federal government email server might be. Um, I come from a, I mean, I come from a slightly different perspective and I see this as a, as a risk uh, issue for legal stuff because it's another source of information. No matter what you use, um, if you're using Dropbox, you're storing records there. If you're, if you're using Google Docs, you're creating information there. If you're underground archiving, then it's extra email in other places. And to, for me, those are places that legal has to look, that lawyers have to look and, and, and those are places where relevant information might live if, if they become relevant in a, in a lawsuit, any kind of litigation, if there's any investigation or, or something like that. So I think that security is a huge risk on the technology side. I think that just legal risk on the, on the, on the other side is, uh, is a significant uh, consequence as well of shadow IT. Right. So, so I think you're right. Legal, regulatory li uh, risk uh, in the discovery area is, is just simply the fact that you have employees doing this. Does that sort of open up 
the scope of discovery against you to the employee equipment and home computers. You know, I uh, sure does. It and then yeah. how do you deal with that? I think in uh, in terms of the the administration or the IT side of things, you you have uh, potential risks to how your network works, uh, standardization, people using different things, incompatibilities, people are installing things maybe where there's no no licensing or in violation of of licenses. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on there, and and in most cases, I w- would be shocked if there's not a policy in place that clearly. Uh, prohibits most of the things that, that count as shadow IT. Yeah, I agree. And and I, I really think that if we're looking for solutions for for this issue, uh, I, I think that the, that the solution is not more technology. Uh, I think technology is doing just fine. Um, I think the solutions are managing expectations amongst employees and, you know, trying to figure out what is driving them to these tools and can we either provide them with tools that get them what they need or can we adopt uh, or, or adapt our policies so that they don't feel so threatened? They don't feel the need to, to go in and look for other things. Can we, uh, can we modify the way we do things to protect ourselves and make the employees happy at the same time? And in my email example, um, there are a number of policies that you can set with employees. And I usually like to say, Keep email out there where people can see it, that you're only going to delete it after a certain period of time, and it can't be a short period. It's got to be a longer period of time, and it ages out. And the older it gets, the less people have to look back and get to their email. And honestly, people don't look at email that's two or three years old. They, they think they do. They think they're going to need to go back, but it just doesn't happen that often. And you put a policy in place where you say, we're not going to get rid of your email. We just need you to manage it better. And, and I've seen time and again where given that kind of guidance and good management technique and good communications that people will, you know, fall in line with that and and, and won't resort to the need for shadow IT or any type of underground archiving. And I see it as, you're right, I I see it more as a management issue, but I sort of see it as a leadership issue because I, I think that if you use the Clinton example, if you know that the head of your organization has their own personal email server, believe me, you th- you're going to feel entitled to do all sorts of shadow IT yourself. So mm-hmm. so I think I think there's a leadership issue. You can definitely cut down on a lot of things if you take away a- administrator rights for everybody because then people should not be able to to install software at all. But I think there it, it, you touched on a really important thing, which I call that your IT department needs to be more agile and more nimble and try to figure out what is it that people really need? Because if you kind of hear what people are using the shadow IT things for, then you can, that will give you a plan um, for what things you need to bring in and what should be prioritized because these are tools that that people are are definitely looking for. So Tom, I guess let's wrap it up by saying, uh, do you think we're going to see even more shadow IT as time goes on? I think shadow IT is something that never goes away because as tools pop up, if, if Google Docs is out there and people want to use it, um, then companies find a way to offer collaborative document writing, then there's going to be something else that pops up down the road. So I really don't see it as something that, that ever 
goes away. And what's going to be interesting to me is whether or not um, as more and more millennials enter the legal marketplace, I would see them tending to be more the rebels, the people who would want to try new things. So um, I'll be interested to see whether that's that's the case or whether whether they're easier to, to satisfy with the right kind of tools. What about you, Dennis? I say, look at your smartphone. We're expecting to do everything on our smartphones. That's going to be the place where people expect to be, be doing everything everything. And that's where I, I think we're going to see lots of what we will refer to as shadow IT. Well, you heard it here first. And before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. Tom and I were on a call recently talking about a panel presentation on legal technology trends. We'll be part of it, uh, ABA Tech Show 2015 on April the 16th. Um, I, I found myself stepping into a resounding silence and feeling like I needed to volunteer to put together the draft of the slides for the sessions. I jokingly asked what slide transitions the other people, uh, the other speakers preferred, and to my surprise, unless they were all joking with me, people had some pretty strong opinions um, and some actual suggestions for transitions. So I suggested to Tom this might be a good topic for our second segment, and I actually uh, talked Tom into agreeing. Tom, I count 35 possible slide transitions in the version of PowerPoint I'm looking at right now. Can the choice of slide transitions really enhance your presentations, and do you have any favorite transitions? Well, first of all, I hate to break the news to you, Dennis, but I was on that same call, and I'm pretty sure that the strong opinions of transition preferences were as joking or sarcastic as as your comment initially was. And I hate to to disappoint you on that, but I was my my suggestions for transitions were certainly not completely serious because I've got to believe that people who take their PowerPoint seriously are hearing us talk about this and are cringing and saying, "Why are you talking about transitions? It sounds like." you're talking about animations and we all know that just animations are bad bad we can't use them we it's we we shouldn't be looking at them that said I think it really depends. I'm going to give the lawyer answer it depends on the type of presentation. Um, I typically don't use either animations or transitions in the PowerPoint decks that I use or when I do keynote. I don't I typically don't use them. Um, but I will say though that I have used them and I think that they make sense 
in certain circumstances. And the one that I'll use the most is, um, is for either entertainment or educational purposes to break up a mood or to keep the interest or to make it more interesting. I think that if I'm just going to get up and give a speech, I'm unlikely to use transitions in that because I'm going to rely on my ability to, 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 to give a speech and hold their attention rather than the ability of the PowerPoint to make it interesting for me. Um, however, when I develop training materials for clients, uh, I, I, they're going to be taking that course on their own. And I think that adding in some transitions tends to be, uh, it breaks up the monotony. It makes it a little more interesting to watch. Um, it, it may not lend anything substantial to the content, but it, uh, it makes it not such a boring, plain, flat training presentation or something like that. I'm not sure that I have a favorite transition. I've sort of always been a fan of how the cube, how the square, when it looks like it's turning on a box looks. Uh, I don't know that I would use it in many presentations, but I think it's a cool look. Dennis, do you have favorite transitions? Well, I generally use no transitions um, for for a number of reasons. I think I think they tend to be distracting. I don't, you know, I don't want people to pay attention to what I'm saying rather than watch how one slide you know moves in into the next one. So. I, I just don't use transitions. And then also the thing where if somebody might be reviewing slides, which is less common these days than maybe in the past, but if you're moving through slides quickly, you don't really want to go through all those those transition animations. So if you're running out of time, those those transitions just eat up more of your time. But I looked through all the transitions and tried them all. Uh, so I have a list of six of them. So the one that I think people use a lot, and and so it's it's something that people are comfortable with, and I, I think you see it a lot, like on on TV and and, uh, and maybe newscasts and stuff. Is is the sort of dissolve from one slide to another? There's one that I like to. It's called cover, which sort of has one slide uh, come in and lie on top of the next one. So it's like a card. You imagine a card on the table, another card lying on top of it. Something a little bit similar is called switch. Uh, has the same sort of effect. The cube that Tom mentioned, I also sort of liked, and I, I could see where if it matched the theme of, or you could match it to the theme of what you're talking about, it, that could be kind of an interesting uh, set of transitions to use. I was talking to uh, one of my colleagues, and he was uh, he he liked the really one of the really busy ones called Vortex, which just has like your whole screen dissolve into into a million squares and swirl around. And he thought he wouldn't use it more than say for one or two transitions in a presentation, but thought it might might help emphasize a point. And, and I think that's the notion for me of transitions is don't use it for everything, but there might be a place where it sort of makes a point. And the other one I liked that I could see um, used sparingly on transitions, something called ripple, which gives the sense of like a, you know, a drop of water expanding and then turning into the next slide. So I think if you, you can use these things, uh, especially if they fit your theme or they, they fit the actual content on the slide. Otherwise, I just think, and, and I would use them really sparingly because I th think that uh, and you definitely want to use, if you have 35 slides in your presentations, you definitely don't want to use all, every single one of the transitions once, because uh, it's really distracting. 
Well, knowing, Dennis, that you have volunteered to do a PowerPoint presentation at, at ABA Tech Show, I am now dying to see it, and I can't wait until Tech Show to see which transitions, if any, you wind up using in the presentation. I'm dealing with pros, so I know that no trans the no transition rule is probably going to be in effect. But I may do like the second the second version that that inserts like 25 different uh, transitions just to freak you guys out. <laughs> so now it's time for our parting shots. That one tip, website, or observation that you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So we are recording this podcast as uh, the uh, South by Southwest conference ends uh, in Austin. And uh, if you were in Austin or following it from afar, uh, there was one technology word that echoed above all others, and that was Meerkat. Meerkat is a new app. It's kind of the darling of uh, a South by Southwest, even though Twitter's doing its best to shut it down. Uh, Meerkat uh, allows you, and right now it's only available on iOS. Android is coming soon, but it allows you to open up your phone uh, and live stream on Twitter. So you, uh, you, you'll send a link and it says, please join my live stream and people can, uh, can click a link and you can hold a meeting, you can show a presentation, you can just show where you are and people can join it. And uh, I, I, I'm still exploring the potential uses and value of it and I'm not convinced one way or the other, but I think it's a really interesting technology that, uh, that we're seeing. And there are other tools that are going to be coming out that allow you to live stream and, and even, I don't know if it's better or worse, it doesn't save the video. Once once you stop live streaming, it's gone. Uh, so uh, if you have an iOS device, download it on your iPhone, check it out. It's called Meerkat. And it's always worth remembering that uh, South by Southwest, uh, yeah, South by Southwest is the place that Twitter broke open at, right. the, at the beginning. So uh, technologies that are hot there are always worth taking a look at. So I have actually a, a product that solves, I think this might have come from the Cool Tools website at, at some point, but. Uh, I find that, as all of us do, that sometimes you get jars and bottles and stuff that it's basically impossible to get the lid off, and you're always trying things like banging them on the floor or hitting a spoon against them. But there's something that I've I've bought and I really, really like called the OXO Good Grips Jar Opener. So this is basically a... a a device with a handle and sort of a, a V with uh, teeth on in one part of it. You snug it against the lid of any size, and the V allows it to fit all these different sizes, including basically if you have, a, say, a wine bottle, of, of, as I sometimes find for some reason lately, the Diet Pepsis in St. Louis, the, like, 20-ounce bottle, uh, the the lids are really difficult to get off and it will snug down to something even that small and you give it a turn and it just totally opens it and it's awesome and uh, anybody around you is totally impressed with how uh, you're able to open jars that otherwise, uh, especially if they haven't been able to open them. So OXO Good Grips Jar Opener, uh, I think it's about 10 or 15 bucks. Uh, if, once you try it, you'll totally love it Don't, and won't know how you lived without it. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. 
So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.